Well, um, there's handouts out back there, and if you, uh, if you don't have one. The best way to start, as you know, we've, been, we've done the evangelism, and all of you are evangelists now, and I know you're, um, if I went through, everybody would tell me how many people you've been sharing Christ with this week, and uh, so that would be a good thing. But we're going to move from evangelism, just general evangelism, what that is and, and why it's important, and uh, we've defined all that. Um, we're going we're gonna to move into missions now. And the best way to start a class on missions is to define missions. Because missions isn't really, it's not really a biblical word like, like justification or, or gospel even. Um, we've already, we've done the study on the gospel. We've seen, we've been able to come up, up with like a firm biblical definition of, of that, of what the gospel really is. Um, but missions is a bit trickier to come up with that definition. We talk about mission trips, we talk about mission fields and mission work and, and world missions. Um, we, Davis Bosch in his book, Transforming Mission, says since the 1950s, there has been a remarkable escalation in the use of the word mission among Christians. This went hand in hand with a significant broadening of the concept, at least in certain circles. So, I'm asking you, what is missions? Sharing the gospel and making disciples. Sharing the gospel and making disciples. It's the Great Commission. It's the Great Commission. Okay. Was the gospel, learning, sharing the gospel period, was that that? Does missions differ? Well, we're going to answer those questions in the next couple months. It used to be that missions had a pretty narrow definition that referred to Christians being sent out cross-culturally to convert non-Christians and plant churches. That's kind of... That kind of is what used to be the definition or, or something like that. You know, you're going into a cross-cultural um, area, not something that is culturally you're used to, and you're, you're being sent to that place, and you're being sent to convert non-Christians, to basically share the gospel with people, and, and then also plant churches. That's what it used to be. Now, Christians have defined it much more broadly. There's environmental stewardship in missions. There's community renewal in missions. There's blessing our neighbors in missions. Um, the missional, have you heard that word? Missional. Missional has become the big buzzword in t today. Um, missions is here. Missions is there. Missions is everywhere. Missional is is the buzzword and so everything is missional everything is about being missional in the church today and uh, so that makes us all missionaries missional missionaries I guess um, outside the church people basically know what the word mission means right think about back in the old days mission impossible always involved a specific goal that Peter Graves um, or now Tom Cruise they were supposed to accomplish 
a specific goal. That was the mission. It was unusually a mission impossible. Companies spend millions every year refining their mission statements. Every organization has something as, to po as opposed to other things that it tries to do and must do as their mission. And uh, even we have a mission statement that's on the front of the, uh, that's on the top of the bulletin every week. And so, you know, churches have gotten involved in, in trying to figure out what their mission is. Now, I wouldn't agree with, uh, what I, with the book that I'm going to tell you, uh, explain to you. Bosch, is, Bosch wrote a book, and uh, it was called Transforming Missions. And um, I, I don't agree with his theology of missions, and I don't like the way he does missions. But I do like the way he defined uh, missions, at, in the, at least in the traditional usage. He says that missions presupposes a sender and a person or persons sent by the sender and those whom one is sent to those who's, who, who one is sent and an assignment is involved. That's kind of the, the traditional usage of the word. He's saying that it, at its most basic term, missions implies four things to most people. One, Someone is sending. Somebody's going to send. And two, someone is being, or being sent. Number three, there is a place to be sent. And four, the one being sent is given a task. And so that's kind of the traditional definition. So, where do we in this class begin to have a biblical understanding of missions? Is it by, by doing a demographics of the world and the neediness of those without the gospel? Is it a study of the history of the expansion of the early church and then moving to modern missions efforts? Is it examining the purpose of, of evangelism and missions? And I think all of those are good in some ways, but it's not the starting place for a truly biblical view of missions. To understand missions and our proper place in it as this local body of Christ here at um, Countryside Bible Church, we have to start at the foundation, at the source, and, and in the excellence of the nature of the character of God. We have to, we have to start at the foundation, the source, in the excellence of of the nature and character of God. That's where we start. Everything biblical should start where the Bible starts, right? I mean, that just kind of should make sense. Our passion for mission should always start with, in the beginning, God. It should always start with God. The Puritan Thomas Watson said, We glorify God when we are God-admirers. Writer Tom Wells says it uh, really, uh, really well in his book, A Vision for Missions. He said, Men must know God. That is the one thing they must do. And this can mean nothing less than that God is eminently worthy to be known in all the length and breadth and height and depth of his character. The Christian is a God explorer. The Christian vision is the vision of God. The missionary vision is the vision of God also. 
It is not something different from the Christian vision. It is the same vision being shared rather than merely enjoyed. It is the same vision being shared with men who have no natural taste for it in the hope that God will create that taste so that they will become God admirers. Sharing the vision of God, that is the work of missions. He put it well. The next question we must ask is, why does, why does missions exist? Or, or another way of saying it is, why do Christians labor to spread the gospel message to those who've not heard? And I think in light of what we've just considered, the biblical answer seems obvious. According to scripture, missions exists because God is great and worthy to be known and loved for his infinite excellence. God is great. The excellence of God is the foundation of missions and God exalting, exalting worship is the goal of missions. So the excellence of God is the foundation. It's the bottom. It's the foundation of missions. And God exalting worship is the goal of missions. It may seem like kind of a strange statement for us to consider. I think many of us initially would say that missions exist because there's so many lost people that God wants to reach with the news of the gospel. And God does certainly want to do that. He wants to call His people to repentance and faith. Luke 14 there's a few verses in there, 15 to 23, that tells the parable of the banquet for which God the Father wants to come in and sends out His servants to compel them to come in so that His house will be full. That's the idea there. God does want the lost to be reached with the good news of the gospel. That's certainly true at one level, but it's not the deepest explanation of what God's motives here. If missions is only about how much God wants fellowship with us, then it becomes a, a man-centered pursuit. We become the point, but that isn't what Scripture says. It's not what we see. So let's, let's talk for, about the greatness of God. Understanding the greatness of God is the key to understanding a Christian motivation for missions. Uh, Charles Meisner wrote in Let the Nations Be Glad, which is not a bad missions book. Um, he says, The design of the universe is, is very magnificent and shouldn't be taken for granted. And in fact, I believe that is why Einstein had so little use for organized religion. Although he strikes me as a basically very religious man, he must have looked at what the preachers said about God and felt that they were blaspheming. He had seen much more majesty than they had ever imagined. And they were just not talking about the real thing. My guess is that he simply felt that religions he'd run across did not have proper respect for the author of the universe. So the greatness of God is the foundation of, of missions. We need to remember that. The greatness of God is the foundation of missions. Isaiah 40, verses 25 and 26 says this, To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Says the Holy One. 
Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brought, brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls them each by name because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. A clear understanding of God, God's greatness is, is central. You, 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 can't, you can't make it not central to the missionary effort. While that's true, it can seem like a less significant an unrelated point when we're talking about missions and thinking of it like as an activity. But throughout history, a view of God's greatness and the commitment that God has revealed to make it, His name great among the nations has been a driving force that, that's motivated missionaries and helped them to persevere through their, their activity. So the greatness of God is the foundation of missions. The goodness and sovereignty of God is the backbone of missions. The goodness and sovereignty of God is the backbone of missions. William Carey, who was the famous missionary and kind of the great pioneer missionary, um, when, he, when he got to India in 1763, he wrote this reflecting about, about that, just get, getting there in 1763 in India. He said, when I left England, my hope of India's conversion was very strong. But amongst so many obstacles, it would die, unless upheld by God. Well, I have God, and, I ha and His word is true. Though, though the superstitions of the heathen were a thousand times stronger than they are, and the example of the Europeans a thousand times worse, Though I were deserted by all and persecuted by all, yet my faith, fixed on the sure word, would rise above all obstructions and overcome every trial. God's cause will triumph. God is good, and God has a good plan to gather every person that he saves. And God is unquestionably sovereign. We've talked about that in in the evangelism side, his plan to save people will succeed because his arm is limitless in power. Like William Carey, the pioneer missionary William Carey, our deep appreciation of those things and those truths provide the foundation we need for both passion and to keep persevering in missions. But next we see the global praise of God's glory is the final goal of mission. The global praise of God's glory is the final goal of missions. So let's look at a, at a couple of verses here that really point this out. Psalm 67, 3 to 4. Somebody find that and read it. And then also Psalm 96, 3. Psalm 67, verses 3 to 4. Let the people praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you will judge the peoples with uprighteousness and guide the nations on the earth. All right, and then Psalm 96, 3. Declare his glory among the nations. His wonders among all people. So that's just a couple of many we could go to that talk about 
the, the global praise of God's glory, to see that is the, is the final goal of missions. So the praise of God's greatness in the hearts of God's people is the goal of the world missionary enterprise. Man is not the center of missions. Although the church has kind of made it that way. Uh, I'm not saying ours has, but, but the church in general out there has kind of gotten off track here. And uh, man is not the goal. Man is not the center. Man is not the goal of missions. The enjoyment of God's greatness is actually a gift to man and the goal of all God-centered missions. But the point here is that God is the goal. God is ultimately the goal here. And we'll see and understand that more as we go, out, go on throughout the, the class in the next, over the next few weeks. Our passion to proclaim God's greatness is rooted in His own passion for His own glory. Let me say that again. Our passion, our passion to proclaim God's greatness is rooted in His own passion for His own glory. We talked about that a little bit in, uh, in the evangel- when we talked about evangelism. John Piper writes, The ultimate foundation for our passion to see God glorified is His own passion to be glorified. God is central and supreme in His own affections. There is no rivals for the supremacy of God's glory in His own heart. God is not an adulterer. He does not disobey the first and great commandment. With all his heart and soul and strength and mind, he delights in the glory of his manifold perfection. The most passionate heart for God in all the universe is God's heart. Look at uh, Isaiah 48, verses 9 through 11. Isaiah 48, verses 9 through 11. For the sake of my name, I delay my wrath. And for my praise, I restrain it for you, in order not to cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory I will not give to you. So, the, the, the person out there, um, might ask, does God's passion for His glory make Him unloving then because He's all about Himself? Of course the answer, we know the answer to be no to that. Um, but that stems from a couple of key misunderstandings about, we, forget, we kind of forget about who we are and who God is. We tend to, to kind of get that out of proportion and we we go on life and we kind of forget that. First uh, Corinthians thirteen five. Aaron preached on this a few weeks ago. This is part of what he preached on. Says, "Love seeks not its own. Love seeks not its not its own. But we must remember, not all self love is wrong. God is not an adulterer, so God seeking His own glory is not sin. We have to understand and remember. Very important." but we get it all off, off kilter all the time. We are not God. So 1 Corinthians 13 applies to us and not God. He's perfectly right 
to love and seek His own glory. God Himself is the most excellent and glorious being in the universe. For God to be truthful, He must exalt His own glory above all else. And the enjoyment of Him is the best and kindest gift that He could give to us. So all this good news for us, for, for, for humans is a message that we can be saved from God's judgment and then herald that message to a world under God's just judgment for sin. But how does God receive the glory for that? And I think the connection between God's passion for His, His own glory and missions is found in the little words, grace and mercy. Grace and mercy are, mercy are really just different sides of the same coin. Right? They both have to do with God's, the kindness and compassion of God. On one side of the coin, God is God giving us what we don't deserve. That's grace. He's given us what we don't deserve. On the other side of the coin, though, is God not giving us what we do deserve. That's mercy. Grace and mercy. Really, really close but seen differently. The glory God seeks to magnify is the glory of grace and mercy. According to the Bible, all of us have sinned. Where would we might find that? Romans 3, which says? All right, so according to the Bible, all of us have sinned. As a result, we all deserve death. Where might we find that? Romans 6.23, which says, The wages of sin is death. Yes. It goes on to say more. Right, right. So the fact that we're not dead, every day we live is an act of God's mercy. In other words, God not punishing us as our sins deserve. Remember, remember David in Psalm uh, 51, 1 and 2. David cries out, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. That's the word mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Here, David is pleading for God's mercy in asking him to show compassion and withhold the judgment that he really rightly deserves. That's mercy. Remember Isaiah, or Isaiah, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works. Why? So that you can't boast, right? So that no one can boast. There you go. Very good. Your Awana is coming through. You're on first. Okay. So, Paul tells us that we're saved by grace. God giving us the gift of salvation that we don't deserve. We know it as unmerited favor. That's grace. The gospel tells of the surprising way in which God has chosen to be glorified. He could have decided to judge us to eternal condemnation for His glory. Right? He could have done that. But instead, he's decided to glorify himself by showing us grace and mercy. Turn to Ephesians 1, 
Ah, man, one of my favorite sections in the Bible. Ephesians 1, verses 5 through 14. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of his glory, of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will to the end that we were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Such a great section of scripture. And um, I've, I've already talked about that and when we talked about evangelism, we'll talk about it probably, I want to talk about that forever because it's such a great passion. But why did God predestine us according to those verses? Why did he predestine us for, for adoption? Why did he cause us to hope in Christ? Why did he give us an inheritance? And the answer is he did all those things so that he would be glorified. Did you notice how Paul um, repeats the theme of God's glory over and over again? What, what is the phrase he repeated? To the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. The gospel and missions cannot be and must not be separated from God's desire to glorify himself. In Romans 15, verses 8 and 9, Paul writes particularly regarding Christ's mission on earth. And he says, For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs, so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing hymns to your name. Zeal for God's glory motivates missions. It motivates missions. Having a, a servant's spirit and a heart of mercy motivates world missions. Christ himself chose to come to earth and become a servant, even unto death on a cross. Romans 15, 9, in, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Christ became poor for our sakes, so that we here, we here in this room and that are born again believers, um, so that we might glorify God for his mercy and grace. He died on a cross so that not only we, but people around the world would glorify God for his mercy 
and grace. And that's motivation for us then to spread this message of the gospel to those people that haven't heard and in missions that those people would be outside of here and uh, outside of these four walls. So that we've been called to glorify God and, and the, the connecting words of mercy, grace and mercy. We see the idea expressed in Christ's reaction when he saw crowds who did not believe in Matthew 9, verses 36 and 38. Matthew 9, 36 to 38. Somebody wants to read that if you get it. Matthew 9, 36 to 38. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. So Christ's compassion expresses itself in the call to pray for more missionaries. He makes it clear here that in order for the harvest to be gathered, that is for His grace and mercy to be communicated to the crowd, workers must be sent. And so we... The body of Christ have the privilege of being part of this display of His glory. We, through proclaiming, proclaiming the gospel message to the nations, play a part in God glorifying of Himself. He doesn't need us to do this. We've talked about that in evangelism. He doesn't need us to do that, but, he, but He's chosen us that we might be a part of the work that He's accomplishing. By, by redeeming a people for His name, and for his glory. And, you know, the, the, the skeptic out there would say, if God's glory is so wrapped up within his church, then, his, 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 then that seems pretty precarious, right? And unstable. Because after all, missions to, the mission to spread the gospel to all the earth hasn't been completed even after 2,000 plus years. Um, the, the skeptic tells us that God's failed in his purposes, or at least he's planned foolishly, but God hasn't failed. Christians, as Christians, we believe that God is the only wise God. That means that we believe that he knows and has chosen the best way in which to glorify himself. We don't understand it all, but that's God's way, not ours. The way he's orchestrated to receive glory from his people is a perfect one. And it cannot be improved upon. God's wisdom means that he always chooses the best way to accomplish the end that he has in view. This is the plan that God knows will most bring glory to himself. Ephesians 3.10 So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. God has chosen this manifold wisdom to be made known even to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, the angels. And, he, and, and it's through His church. That's us. The way in which we live our lives here in Nebraska and the way we, in which the gospel message expand, expands throughout the world, both of those things bring God glory. In his infinite wisdom, he's chosen these means of spreading his gospel. We, 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 we might sometimes feel inadequate for the task 
We might feel intimidated by the challenge, but God even works for our limitations to show His sufficiency, and He does it, what did Ephesians say? To the praise of His glory. Yeah. So we can see that God has decided to glorify Himself through showing grace and mercy to sinners. And not only that, but this way of glorifying Himself and calling us to worship Him and also spread His gospel to the nations is the best way for Him to receive glory. What a great God we serve. Right? Right? We really do. He is worthy of all our praise and of our lives. God's glory is expressed through grace and mercy and all of and those all of that glory, grace, mercy they're all one in the cross of Christ. God's passion for his glory exalts in the joy of his people through their praise for his mercy, grace. The real power of missions comes as as God's people are caught up in his passion and his goal, which really amounts to just true worship in our lives. So, let's look real quickly at what, what fuel powers our passion for missions. What is it that, what fuel, what, what is it that keeps us going? What, what is it that keeps us going when we're talking about evangelizing the, the nations. Number one, it's a knowledge of God, not missions. It's a knowledge of God, not missions. What, one of the things that, keep, that, that fuels our passion for missionary efforts with missions out there is that is a knowledge of God. Knowing everything we can about, being God admirers as the, I put it earlier when I read that to you. Um, uh, so, a knowledge of God, not of missions. A right passion for missions overflows from an increasing delight in the excellence and worth of God revealed in Christ. So number one, a knowledge of God, n- not missions. Number two, a knowledge of God's sufficiency. In other words, God, God works for his people. He's in control. He's the great evangelist. So God is sufficient for, for what we need to, to do missions. A knowledge of God's sufficiency. God works for his people. Isaiah 46, 1 through 4 says, Bell has bowed down, Nebo stoops over. Their images are consigned to the beasts and the cattle. The things that you carry are burdensome, a load for the weary beasts. They stooped over, they have bowed down together. They could not rescue the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob. And all the remnant of the house of Israel, you who have been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb, even to your old age, I will be the same. I will, and even to your graying years, I will bear you. I have done it. 
and I will carry you, and I will bear you, and I will deliver you. A knowledge of God's sufficiency. He is sufficient. He's all we need. We're going to sing a song, All I Have is Christ, this morning. It's, it's all we need. We just need to remember that. Piper said in the Let, Let the Nations Be Glad, missions is not a recruitment project for God's labor force. It's not a recruitment project for God's labor force. It's a liberation project from the heavy burdens and the hard yokes of other gods. Think about that. It, missions is a, is a liberation project from the heavy burdens and hard yokes of other gods. Everybody who is not a born-again believer serves another god. Now, it might be himself, but, it, but they serve another god. Missions, evangelism, missions, taking it to the world, is, is really just a, a liberation project from the heavy burdens and hard yokes of those gods that they serve. Number three, a knowledge of God's sovereignty. A knowledge of God's sovereignty. Think about that. You know, again, you, you just God is sovereign. We all say that, but do we really believe it? God really is sovereign. His ways always come to pass. What God wants will always come to pass. And His ways are the best ways, the good ways, even though we don't always understand it as humans. Number four, a knowledge of God's wisdom. A knowledge of God's wisdom. He is, he is the all-wise God. The best means, he, he, His wisdom provides the best means for the best ends. Number five, a knowledge of God's gospel. A knowledge of God's gospel. Hopefully one of the things that, that you came away with um, from the, the part on, on evangelism, understanding the gospel, really looking at it again and being reminded of what the gospel really is, is that you came away understanding it's a message of joy. I mean, that, that is a joy. The gospel should be joy to us who, who are believers this, mor- this morning. And a call to joy is a call worth sharing. Um, Psalm 97.1. Somebody read that. And somebody else look up Psalm 67, 3 to 4. A call to joy is a call worth sharing. Psalm 97.1. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many islands be glad. Right, and Psalm 67, 3 to 4. Let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. A knowledge of God's gospel is a message of, of, of joy. Why? For the sake of the name of Christ. That's why. For the sake of the name of Christ. Acts 21.13 says, For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. 
Um, Philippians 3, 7 and 8. Somebody read that. But whatever things were gained to me, those things that I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Everything is rubbish for the name of Christ. Um, so why? For the sake of the name of Christ. John 17, 9 and 10. I pray for them that pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given to thine, for they are thine, and all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. Right. Jesus says, I'm, I, I'm not praying for the world, but for those you've given me. So here's the, here's the point in conclusion here this morning, uh, point that we must understand. Our hope in missions is that Christ will be glorified by the Father's completion of the request that he brought, that was brought by the Son. And what is the work which the Father will certainly complete? It is giving eternal life to all those which the Father has given to the Son. So we're going to start here with missions. This is the starting place. It's the, I think it's the right place to start. We'll build upon that. Um, uh, but in the next weeks, in, in the next, in, the, in the, the weeks to come, we'll spend about six of those weeks looking at the Great Commission, Matthew 6, 28, 19, and 20, because it's there that we'll see we're commanded to, somebody said it, make disciples. And we're, we're commanded to make disciples of all the world. And it's important for us to be obedient <coughs> To that command. It's interesting, we started off with uh, in the first evangelism class with this verse, uh, the Great Commission. We're going to end with this. We're going to spend about six weeks dissecting the Great Commission because it's important for us to understand it and um, important for us to be obedient servants to those, to that command. There's a, a great book that was written in 2011 and it was called, What is the Mission of the Church? Making Sense of Social Justice, Shalom, and the Great Commission. Interesting title because COVID and the whole woke stuff that happened um, wasn't even there in 2011. Nobody even thought about that. But still, the church was going through these, these things. Um, and the very last paragraph sums up what, what we're talking about perfectly. Here's what it says. It is not the church's responsibility to right every wrong or to meet every need, though we have biblical motivation to do some of both. It is our responsibility, responsibility, however, our unique mission and plain priority that this unpopular, impractical gospel message gets told that neighbors and nations may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, they may have life in His name. There's a lot of things that are gray areas out there. There's a lot of things that we can do um, that, are, that are not necessarily wrong. But 
our response, the church's responsibility for sure is that, to, to, uh, to share the gospel with the world out there. So, fund, missions is fundamentally about God getting glory through His grace and mercy displayed in the great gospel of His Son, Jesus Christ. Yes, Jeff. So when you ask earlier, what is missions? It seems like so many churches view missions as meeting felt needs. In, in today's reading, we do see uh, whoever has the world's good and sees his brother in need, closes his heart, is not in Christ. But most missions now, it's let's fill some backpacks for some needy kids. Let's send quilts. Let's send coats. Let's send food. Let's send health care. Let's drill wells, which are all good things. But it does no good to send people to hell with a full belly and a coat on their back if they haven't heard the gospel. And it seems like over time, missions has become divorced from the gospel. And in churches, uh, it, it, it's totally lost the, the power of what they can do in, in so many places. This is why I wanted to start here. We're going to get to that. We're going to talk about those specific things that you talked about. But we're going to get that in because we're going to look at the Great Commission. And we're going to dissect the Great Commission. And um, I think that'll lead us. You notice I really didn't give a perfect definition of missions. Um, and I think when we look at that and we, we break all of that down over the next six or eight weeks, we're going to see, um, we're going to see what missions is, really. But it has to start with God and God receiving glory for what we're doing and, uh, and going out there into the world. All right? I think you're early. Wow, got a little time to fellowship. All right, let me pray. Father, again, we thank you for the time that you've given us this morning and pray that uh, your name would be great um, and that, that we what we do, whether it's sharing the gospel or or all that we do really, would be for the sake of the name of Christ, that He might receive preeminence in our lives. And that we wouldn't kind of uh, uh, segregate um, that from other parts of our lives. We want Jesus to be not po- the, po- the part of our lives, but the point of our lives. So may you cause us to do that. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.